And welcome, everybody. This is our third, today will be our third session in the Mind Games series. I'll explain why that title and what that is for those of you that haven't been here. But before we get into that third session, let me remind you of a few things that are coming up. This coming Wednesday is our Backyard Fellowship. It will be at the Brinkley's home, David and Christy Brinkley in Gibraltar. They've hosted a Backyard Fellowship for us the last several summers, and they have a great place there on the water, and they're very accommodating hosts, and we always have a great time. So if you can make it, we encourage you to do so. It's at 6.30 on uh, when, this Wednesday, and we have maps to their place out on the Information Center desk. So if you've never been, pick one of those up, and we'll hope to see you uh, this Wednesday. In the program, today's program, there's a paragraph about that, and it tells you what we ask you to bring. If you're not able to bring any of those, work gets crazy, and you're not able to stop at home, then just come anyway. So don't let any of those items keep you from coming. But if you are able to bring some stuff, uh, what we ask you to bring is listed in the program. So that's this coming Wednesday. And then on August the 7th, Friday night, August the 7th, we have our Mud Hens, Toledo Mud Hens game. And we've done that for the last several years. We have a reserved seating area for us. After the game, there's a fireworks display. The cost of the tickets is $10, and those are available in the Resource Center, which is out that back door and across the hallway. So I would urge you to pick those up now because they're going fast uh, if you want to be in our group. And this year, there's a special event, and that is our ensemble is going to sing the national anthem for the uh, Mud Hens game. So those guys have been practicing for quite a while. They sound terrific. And uh, if you want to hear them and support them, you not only need to get a ticket, you have to show up on time because the national anthem starts everything off. So that's Friday night, August the uh, August the seventh, and then on August the sixteenth, there is a fifteen minute meeting to introduce Stephen Ministry, and there's a big paragraph in your program today about what Stephen Ministry is. Read that, and if you have any interest in what that says then plan on attending that 15-minute meeting during this time, or excuse me, the between time, worship in, and this hour on Sunday the 16th, okay? All right, those are the things that are coming up. Today is our third session in this series that I've titled Mind Games, and you see the subtitle, How to Think For and About Yourself. So we have, for the last two weeks, been focusing on the importance of the mind in how we behave and that if we each of us are going to make changes in our lives then those changes are going to have to begin with how we think so mind games are extremely important because your thoughts are what give rise to your words and your thoughts and your words ultimately lead to your actions So if you only focus on behavioral change, then you will not be focused on root change in your life. Radical root change has to get to the root, what it is that causes the fruit in our lives, the particular deeds and things we do, those flow out of how we think and and how we talk. So mind games are at, at the root of the things we say and the things we do. Now, why would changing then be extremely important for us. As I've pointed out these first couple of weeks, 
change should be a constant in the Christian life. That if the goal of the Christian life is to become gradually more and more like Christ, then regularly I should be seeing things about myself that are not in conformity to how Jesus would think and talk and act. And then seeing those things, a desire to see that, have those things changed in my life. And so change should be a regular part of our lives. But I've also pointed out that for far too many Christians, change is seldom seen. Now, why is that? Why would a group of people like us, Christians who profess to be followers of Christ and therefore have as the goal to be like Jesus, why would change be so infrequent in our lives if that's indeed the case? If that's the end game, then why are we not changing more often and regularly? Part of the reason for that is that we believe that we have it covered. We believe that if we've made external changes in our lives, then there's not a whole lot that needs to be done. Yeah, I need to be tweaked with a little bit. There's some stuff that you know I'd like to change. There's some stuff certainly that my spouse and my kids would like for me to change. But overall, I'm a pretty good guy. And how do I know I'm a pretty good guy or gal? Because I hang around with people at church who are pretty much like me. And the people at church, of course, are the standard in our minds. So if I've conformed to the group in my external behavior, then I pretty much got it covered. And that's why my observation is many, if not most, evangelical Christians see themselves as just middle-class people who need a little tweaking every now and then. But what we really need is radical change that gets to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter gets to our desires and our thoughts, our words, and then our actions. And if we only deal with the actions, then we are only dealing with the, the end of the process, not the root of the process. And we're only dealing with a superficial representation of what we really are. And that superficial representation of conformity in my external actions can mean that I'm with the, when I'm with the group, I conform. But when I'm with a different group, not so much. And I'm convinced that this is what explains the hypocrisy then that you see in the lives of so many professing Christians. Because if it's only the external, and the external is based upon conforming to the group standards, then I conform when I'm with the group. But when I'm with another group, they got a different set of standards. And so then you have someone who's a professing Christian, but when they're with this other crowd, they act different. Now, if all of that's going to change, if we're going to change... And our behavior is going to be consistent whether we're at church or whether we're at work or at leisure or in our homes or wherever we are. If that's going to happen, then it's going to have to mean that we're going to have to get to the root of the issues. And that means we're going to have to engage in the mind games. Now, last week, I pointed out to you that uh, if you don't engage in those mind games and if you don't see get to that root level, and if I don't do that, then it will, yes, cause me to change obvious and external things that are harmful to me, are disapproved by the group. And so we can call that change and be satisfied with it, but it will leave large areas of our lives untouched. Things like gossip, 
Things like slander. Things like complaint about other people. And I pointed out last week that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you don't need to turn there. In fact, where you can turn if you have a Bible is Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Psalm 42. But last week I pointed out that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible is all about change. That the Bible is God's instrument of change in our lives because it tells us what God is like. It tells us what we're like, what makes us tick. It gives us the standard of God's character and shows the gap that exists between who he is and where we are. But it doesn't just leave us there. The Bible gives us instructions about how to change. To put off certain types of thinking and talking and doing and put on other types of thinking and talking and doing. And the Bible does all of that. And that's why that famous passage in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for these four things in logical order. Teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. Those four things. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. And I pointed out that they have to be in that order. That you're first taught and then after you're taught, you're rebuked. Or that's the same word for convicted. Okay, that's what the Bible teaches I'm supposed to be and I'm not. So I'm convicted. But the Bible doesn't leave you there. It says the Bible is useful for correcting, causing to stand what has previously fallen. The Bible instructs on how to replace certain patterns of thinking, talking, and and doing with other patterns. So the Bible is God's instrument for this change to happen. But as I say, the change doesn't happen that often. One, because we're content with external conformity. And then one other reason quickly, and that is... Many of us just don't think change is necessary. I mean, one, we think we've pretty much got it covered because I'm as good as the rest of the people at church. (laughs) So if that's the standard, then I'm good enough. But here's the other reason. We, We don't think change is necessary, and here's why. Because we believe in something called eternal security, which means if you have a relationship with Christ, then eternally you will are secure in that relationship. You will always have that relationship. Now, the Bible teaches that. That's true. But secure in that knowledge, we then think to ourselves, well, that means I'm going to heaven no matter what I do. So why does it really matter if I do the hard work of changing? Because the really important thing is that I go to heaven, not necessarily that I live for Jesus now. But God says... Yeah, you're, if you're a child of mine, you're going to go to heaven. But it's really important that you live for me now. And how do I know it's really important that you live for him now? Here's how I know. Because you're living. You see, if the only deal that God cared about was you going to heaven, then after you come to Jesus, he should just strike you dead then, right? I mean, just do us all a favor and get these disobedient Christians out of here quickly. By like taking them home now. But God doesn't do that. God says, I've got work for you to do here. I've got conforming and changing for you to do here in the here and now. So heaven's not the only thing that matters to God. What matters to God is his glory. And that happens in the here and now. So we don't change because we think we've externally conformed. And we don't think change because some have decided it's not necessary. And it all goes to the mind. How I think determines how I talk and how I act. 
So I left off last week by encouraging you to think about your thinking. Think about how you think and what you think and about whom you think and whether or not what goes through your mind when you look at other people, when you think about yourself, when you think about God, when you think about your circumstances, think about your thinking. Most of us don't ever do that. We don't ever kind of step back and think about, why do I think this way? Why do I process things in a particular way? And failure to do that can move us into particular patterns of thinking that can become harmful. One of those harmful patterns of thinking can be negative thoughts, negative thoughts about yourself, negative thoughts about other people, negative thoughts about God and your circumstances that can lead you into what one author calls spiritual depression. Some of you know the name Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's with the Lord now, but Martin Lloyd-Jones is a famous preacher, and his sermons were put into books. His sermons through the Sermon on the Mount is voluminous. His sermons through the Book of Romans is likewise voluminous. But he did a series of sermons that are in a book by that name, Spiritual Depression. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression. And here's what one of the things he says in that book. He says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're starting to talk to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday and so on. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? And he says, yourself is talking to you. And then he breaks off and calls our attention to the passage that I've asked you to turn to in Psalm 42. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that too often we listen to ourselves rather than preaching to ourselves, talking to ourselves, correcting the kind of stuff that ourselves are saying to us. Now, as I talk this way, as he talks that way, It makes us sound like we're two people, right? Like I've got one person talking to me and saying these things, and and I'm being advised to have the other person saying these things to me. And so, yeah, so Gary's pointing at his shoulders. I've got the good guy and the bad guy on one shoulder. So I've got these voices that I'm hearing on both sides, right? I read it in a book uh, several years ago. Uh, an illustration of that, where they talked about how so many of us start an exercise regimen, an exercise program, and everyone here can relate to this. I can relate to this as well. We've all started multiple exercise programs in our lives. We've been up at 2 a.m. and we watched an infomercial and we bought the gadget that was going to get us in shape. So you bought a ball, that you can do a zillion exercises on that ball. 
You bought some gadget that you can hang on your closet door and you can do pull-ups and all of that on your closet door. My closet door has a weight limit. I'm just saying, okay? <laughs> Not telling you how I know that. Just. But you bought the gadget. You've got the treadmill in the basement. And here's what I know about treadmills in basements. Tread, you can hang a lot of dirty clothes on a treadmill. Now, it's an expensive closet, but nonetheless, it works, okay? So after a while, that treadmill becomes a place where you just sort of throw stuff, right? So this illustration in the book is saying that you've got two people talking to you. When you wake up in the morning and you are going to get up at 5 a.m. and you're going to do this regimen. And for the first week, you get up and it's, you're all fired up. And then the next week, you get up and your feet come out from under the covers and it feels cold. And it's kind of raining outside, and you just don't feel like it. And you've got a guy talking to you. He's the skinny guy. He's disciplined. He's demanding. He's telling you to get out of bed. Go back to the treadmill like you did the last week. But then there's another guy. The fat guy. The fat guy talks to you as well. And the fat guy tells you it's a lousy day. You've had a hard week. The weekend was very busy. You'll get to it tomorrow. You should sleep in for a couple more hours. You got the skinny guy and you got the fat guy. Gary's got guys on each of his shoulders, he was, he's saying. You got the good guy, you got the bad guy, right? Now we chuckle about that because we've all experienced that. And who are you going to listen to with that? And did you know in Scripture, you have a similar kind of thing going on spiritually? We're going to see in Psalm 42 in just a moment. But at the end of Romans chapter 7, the end of Romans chapter 7, do you remember Paul writing these verses at the end of Romans chapter 7? And he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And this is him talking about him. And then he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. And he goes on saying that. This is the great Apostle Paul saying, I've got, you know, two, two, in effect, two people talking to me, urging me to go in particular directions. Now, the psalmist does something similar. Psalm 42, in verse 1, and let's just read, and let's try to read in context, because these first couple of verses are familiar to us. They're part of choruses that we sing and so on. But understand the context in which we find these. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with a multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Now let me stop there. The psalmist who wrote this 
is in a circumstance in which he can't go to church, in effect. He can't go to temple. He can't be with the people of God. That's what he's lamenting here. He's lamenting what I used to be able to do and I'm not able to do it anymore. And my soul longs for that and pants for that and wants that. And I remember that with fondness. So why can't that happen? Now, if he continues down that road, what's going to happen? Woe is me. I'm going to have the spiritual depression that Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about. I'm going to think about my circumstances and how bad they are. And how compared to where I am now and where I used to be, there's a great gap between them. And then think about where your thoughts can go. Well, why is God doing this to me? Why does God have me in this situation? I want to go to church. It's all I'm asking for. God? Why don't you do something? So do you see this is all going on in the head? And it's thinking about me. And it's thinking about my circumstances. And then it's thinking about God. And then the thoughts can go to thinking about other people. Why do they get to go? Why aren't they in this situation? And all of this is happening in the mind. But the psalmist arrests the thought process. He stops. And in verse 5, says this. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Now, who's he talking to? Himself. So he's moving from listening to himself to talking to himself. The listening to himself, if he continues that... He's on a downward spiral. But he arrests that. He he catches that. He stops that. And he says, whoa, whoa, wait, in effect. Why are you downcast like this, oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? There's an alternative to this, says the psalmist. I don't have to descend mentally into this quagmire. I don't have to go that route. I can stop my thinking And rethink my thinking. Why am I thinking this way? Why am I downcast and disturbed? And then says this. Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him. My Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan. The heights of Hermon. From Mount Mizar. And this all goes into the next psalm as well, Psalm 43. Same, same thing is, is asked. Look at Psalm 43 and verse 5, very last verse. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. So Psalms 42 and 43 are a textbook, really, for how we should think about our thinking. You've got the psalmist doing the stuff that you do and the stuff that I do. Looking at where we are, lamenting where we are, allowing that to affect then our view of ourselves, our view of God, our view of other people. But then the psalmist says, here's the remedy for that. You need to lift your thoughts above the circumstances 
And you need to cease listening to yourself and begin talking to yourself about the things that you absolutely know to be true. Put your hope in God and praise God. And you do that and it will make a profound difference then in the way you think and the fruit that comes out of that thinking. So in Romans 7, Paul does this. In Psalm 42 and 43, the psalmist does this, this this talking to yourself and directing thoughts in a biblical and truthful way. You have a similar thing in the story of the, the prodigal. You remember the prodigal son? And the prodigal rebels against his father. He wants to go out and live the pleasures of the world. And so he says to his father, give me my inheritance early. In effect, saying to his father, I wish you were dead. But since you're not dying quick enough, I mean, then give me the goods now. So disrespect and insult to his father. But he leaves home. He engages in riotous living, lives it up, loses his money. And of course, after you lose your money, you lose your so-called friends. So now he has no friends. And he finds himself foraging for food with the swine, with the pigs. And here's what the Bible says. And he came to himself. He came to himself. I mean, he was in the situation and then by God's grace, he had a flash of thinking where he came to himself and his thoughts were redirected. He came to himself and he said to himself, why am I here? And the kid is talking to himself. But now he's talking to himself in truthful ways. Why am I here? I'm the child of a father who loves me. And of a father who owns pigs and swine and cattle and all of that. And has servants. And he has a place. And here I am foraging for food. Why am I here? And now he starts to think differently about himself. I'm an idiot. He's right about that. I'm in big trouble. My father has the right to punish me. But I am his child and he is my father and I'm going to go back to him. And you all know the story. He does. And his father doesn't wait for his son to come and grovel to him. The Bible says the father is looking for his son, sees him afar off, and he runs. This wealthy man, in this undignified way, has to hike up his robe so he can run. And he runs out there to embrace his son. But it all started with his son doing the mind games. How he thinks about himself and his circumstances. And about the parable is ultimately about God. His father. So when you do this, you are like Paul, like the psalmist, like the prodigal. You're beside yourself. I mean, we say that he or she is beside himself. But the truth is, you've got to be beside yourself. That is, you've got to, in effect, sort of step outside yourself and say, why am I self? Why are you saying this? And then begin to talk to yourself from Scripture. Now, let me give you some self-talk that is fairly common that people engage in. 
kind of mind games that go on that we have got to then do what the psalmist did, what Paul does, what the prodigal did, and arrest that kind of thinking. How many times have you done something stupid? I already know the answer to that. But how many times have you done something stupid? Lots of times. But then you ruminate over and over about the stupid thing you did. Okay, I said something stupid in front of some people. I'm really embarrassed. And so now, over and over in my mind, I'm going, you're such an idiot. You always do, right? I always do this. They have to think I'm dumb. They're not going to want to hang around with me. I always mess things up. And you keep going, you keep going through it. Now, believe me, I've done that. I've done that numerous times. Because one, I talk to lots of people. And I talk in front of a bunch of people. So the opportunities for me to say stupid stuff are legion. And I've taken advantage of those opportunities many times. And I step away and I go, you're an idiot. You would think after you've been doing this for all these years, you're 53 for heaven's sake, and you still don't know how to interact? You still don't know how to talk? That person is never going to come back to church again. And the next week, there they are. And then I think, you're an idiot. (laughs) Why would you come to a church pastored by a guy like me? How many times have you done something, said something stupid, but then you go on and on thinking about it? Now, what's behind all of that? One, we think, now stay with me. We think too highly of ourselves. I mean, what makes me think that I'm not going to say dumb things? Well, because I'm me. I think highly of myself. I should be able to do better than this. I'm better than that, right? But if I could get over myself then I wouldn't think about myself so much. One of the things that will keep you from thinking about how foolish you sounded, how dumb you are, what an idiot you are, one of the things that will help me from doing that is to get over ourselves and to understand that you and I are perfectly capable of messing stuff up. And the quicker you have an accurate view of yourself that way, the more humble then you can be in the way you think about yourself. The reason you beat yourself up is because you have an elevated view of yourself. Same for me. So we think things to ourselves. I couldn't help it. I mean, because I have this elevated view of myself, I can't just accept the fact that I did it and own it. And then say, Lord, thank you for your mercy. And I ask you to work through this situation. And if I need to go and apologize to somebody, then I'll go and apologize to them. But instead, I start to make excuses. I couldn't help it. It was all her fault. I can't do anything right. You know, I wished 
I wish everybody liked me. I can't handle this problem. These are all just thoughts. I can't handle this problem. I want to be independent. That's your teenage kid. I did the best I could. I don't do anything worthwhile. I don't have anything worthwhile to say. I could have and should have done a better job. It was all my fault. They don't appreciate me. On and on and on it goes. And several of those statements are lies. Not only are we talking to ourselves in negative ways, we're lying to ourselves. Now, how do I know they're lies? Here's a couple of them again. I don't do anything worthwhile. Some of you have been around when I've taught on biblical communication, biblical speech. And one of the things that I say is never use the words never. Don't use the words never or always. When you're talking to your spouse, don't say you always or you never. If there's one exception to that, then the always never thing is not true. So let's traffic in truth. Let's speak truthfully and accurately about ourselves as well. I never do anything worthwhile is not true of anyone here. I don't have anything worthwhile to say is not true of anyone here. So let's not lie to ourselves. Now let me use an illustration with permission from my daughter Annie. Annie is now 17. And by God's grace, Annie is growing into a beautiful young lady, wonderful, godly young lady. Thank the Lord. But when Annie was little, Annie had all kinds of things that could have easily developed into neuroses. I mean, Annie was and still struggles with perfectionism. But what is perfectionism other than thinking too highly of myself? What makes me think that I'm supposed to be perfect? So we've had to deal with that. And Annie would get herself in a, a, real, a real mess. And she would say things like, I'm so dumb. Annie would say, I'm so dumb. And here's why this would upset me. Because if Annie is dumb, I'm an absolute imbecile. Because Annie kills it in school, just between us. It was like the girl's going into her senior year. And it was last year that I'm glancing at her report guard card and I go, you've, you've never gotten a B. And she goes, no, in ninth grade I got a B. And I go, well, well we're in the same boat. Because I never got to be either. <laughs> but for different reasons. So Annie's killing it. But here's a little girl. When she's a little girl, she's going, I'm so dumb. And I told Annie, I said, Annie, we don't let you lie here. You're lying. And she's shocked when I say that. You're a liar, Annie. And she's like, what, Daddy? I'm just saying. You know, I'm dumb. And I go, and when you say you're dumb, you're lying. You're not telling the truth. And we are going to speak truth here. 
And you're going to speak truth about yourself and about others and about our circumstances. And we hammered that home to her in very stark ways like that. And I'm recommending to you parents, do not let your children engage in talk that is untruthful, particularly talk that's untruthful about themselves. But they will use that kind of language. I'm so dumb. I can't do anything right. Why? Because they, like you, like me, think too highly of themselves. It's interesting how perverse it is, isn't it? Because it looks like we think, uh, we don't think highly of ourselves at all. That we have a very low view of ourselves when we say things like that. But actually that's rooted in having a very high view of yourself. The whole reason you're lamenting it and thinking about it is because you're just shocked (laughs) that you could say something dumb or do something wrong. So the sooner we get over ourselves, the better we will be able to speak to ourselves. And all of us are regularly engaging in these transactions of the mind, listening rather than talking. And you do it all the time. And I do it all the time. And the question is not, do you instruct yourself? But hear this, but what instruction are you giving to yourself? The question is not, are you instructing yourself? You are, and you're doing it regularly. But what instruction are you giving to yourself? So, just a few other examples, and then I've got to quit. But that's how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. But then that begins to go outward in how we talk to ourselves about other people and think to ourselves about God and about our about our circumstances. So as I begin to think about other people, what are the kinds of things that I I think about? Have you ever done this? You make an evaluation of someone based upon what they now hear this, what they did not do rather than what they did. And here's what I mean. I've had people come up to me over the years and say, you know, I thought you would have X. So they're, they're confronting me about something they thought I would do that I didn't do. Not about something I did. Not about something I did right or did wrong. About something that they thought I would do that I didn't do. Now think about that. Here's somebody thinking about what I should do. And we do that. We think about what other people ought to do. And then we draw conclusions in our minds about them. When all the while, we shouldn't be thinking about what they're not doing. We should be evaluating people strictly on the basis of what they do. And in particular, accentuating the good things that people do. Now, one of the reasons that you think about other people as much as you do, and this will be my last statement. But one of the reasons we tend to think about other people as much as we do is because we think other people are thinking about us. We do. I had a pastor friend years ago tell me a story about a pastor friend of his, a guy I don't know, from the West Coast. And this pastor friend from the West Coast 
said to, some of you know Pastor Mark Burr, said to Mark Burr, Mark, what are other pastors saying about me? Now, this is a pastor from the West Coast asking Mark, then in Gibraltar, Michigan, what are other pastors saying about me? And Mark's answer was, nobody thinks about you. I mean, like, I've never heard anything about you. Why do you think people are saying stuff about you? Why do you think people are thinking about you at all? We think people are thinking about us because we think about other people. So then we tend to project that on other folks. And then we start playing in the mind the mind games in a very unhelpful way. Oh, I know what you're thinking. How do I know what you're thinking? Because I think that way. And I'm very self-conscious about myself and very self-conscious about what you're thinking about me. So I'm playing the game in my mind of what you're thinking, what you're thinking about me. Final illustration. How do I know that you're self-conscious and I'm self-conscious like this? When you go, have you ever watched people go into a restaurant? And you're seated in the restaurant and some people are waiting to get seated and then they finally get seated. And when they get seated, they walk into the restaurant and how many people are like looking around at how people are looking at them? You're kind of self-conscious about it. You don't know what to do with your hands. So you sort of put them in your pockets. If you've got your kids, you hope your kids don't have an explosion in front of everybody of various types. And while you're walking through or in the restaurant, you're self-conscious because everybody's looking at me. When you walk into a room, a restaurant or any place else, you think everybody's looking at you. And I got good news for you. Nobody cares about you. You don't have people watching you and thinking about you like you do. But you think about what others are thinking because you think about others so much. You are so conscious of what other people might be thinking about you because you are also self-conscious about yourself. So my statement earlier was this. We will begin to win the mind games when we begin to get over ourselves. When we begin to have an accurate picture of who we are. When we begin to see ourselves, not with the high view of ourselves that all of us have, but rather with the accurate, not a low view, not a high view, the accurate view that Scripture gives us of ourselves. The mind leads to the way we talk and to the way we act. And the battle for Christian behavior is one before you ever do anything. It's one in the mind. We'll continue next week. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather, to learn, to worship, to give. Lord, this is an opportunity that you afford to us. And as with all matters of your grace, it is something that we don't deserve Help us not to take it for granted. Thank you for this day that you have given, the Lord's Day. And thank you for the opportunity to look into your word about what you have placed us here to accomplish. And then, Lord, in this hour, uh, with regard to this most powerful organ that you have given to us, the mind, that has the spiritual component and the material component, the brain, and they interact together to do things that none other of your creatures can do. 
to conceive and to create and to and to praise and to wonder. These are all capacities that you have given to us as made in your image as spiritual beings. And yet, Lord, we so abuse our minds by using them in ways that reflect the fallenness that we all carry with us. Help us, Lord, as a result of these three weeks together, to be more mindful of our minds, to think more about now our thinking and our thought patterns. And help us this week, as I trust last week, to catch the way that our minds can descend and go into directions that are not true to what you have told us about yourself, about others, about ourselves and our circumstances. Grant us this week, Lord, that we will think well, better, accurately about all of those matters. And help us in the weeks ahead to be able to clarify our thinking so that we can clarify our speech and so that we can engage in behavior that's pleasing to you. Go with us this week and grant us safety, we ask. Until next Lord's Day, in Jesus' name, amen.